Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co-parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring the amicable divorce expert, Judith Weigel. Joining me in centering today, we have Liz Merrill, who is coming to us from Fort Collins, Colorado. Liz is a mediator and a divorce coach with a specialization in high conflict and narcissistic relationships. Therefore, Liz, I call you a legal contortionist. I know you're not a lawyer. I know your shingle is not legal, but you work people engaging in the legal system. And if you specialize, which we're going to be talking about, in high conflict divorce with a specialization in narcissistic behavior, you are something special. And so thank you for doing this. And thank you for joining us. It is absolutely my pleasure. I really um, enjoy talking to people about what I do. And I really um, I'm looking forward to our conversation. So as all good divorce coaches do, they, they've come from their own divorce, and it's generally very difficult. And for that reason, you know, they have found their new career. So too with you, correct? Yep. Yep, and it was about right. what twenty years ago? How long ago? It wasn't. It wasn't quite that long ago. It was quite a while ago, though. I had I had been married for twenty years. That's and, where I got the twenty. Mm-hmm, okay, but yeah, like ten years ago, divorced. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we got. It's been a while, um, but I I was married for twenty years, and I really didn't understand anything about emotional abuse. It really wasn't something that I um, experienced growing up. Unlike a lot of people who find themselves in that position, they, you know, they have these relationship patterns that play out over and over again. And that wasn't the case with me. Um, And I didn't really know what narcissism was. I didn't know anything about personality disorders. I had never even heard the term high conflict until you know, we went through the divorce process. So, you know, and, and I, you know, I didn't really have any support around it. And I just kept thinking it was my fault and kept thinking if I, you know, if I tried better, if I worked harder, if I was a better wife, if I was a better mom, if I, you know, arranged my face in a certain way so that I didn't piss him off, things would get better. And it took me so long to realize that there was literally nothing I could do to, to change things except leave. And, um, and so my kids came to me one day, all three of them and said, mom, why are we don't, we don't feel comfortable. We don't feel safe in this. I think, I think you need to divorce. And I, you know, that was a shock. Right? Okay, freeze frame right now. Your children came to you. How yeah. old were, how, how many and how old were they? They were in elementary school and I have three of them. So, yeah, so they came, they came to me together and I had like many people who are in these kinds of relationships or or in, in, in unhappy marriages in general, really kind of, I think through things that I absorbed, um, through media or through talking to people that I needed to stay in the marriage for the children. Right. Right. And I really thought, you know, that I was being brave and I was doing the strong thing and I was like sucking it up and 
um, not having strong boundaries and so forth and so on, because it would be better for the children if we stayed married. And they came and told me like point blank that it wasn't better for them. And that was like a kick in the gut, right? Because I, I really thought I was doing the right thing. Um, and, and it really sort of motivated me to action. I, I, it didn't take me long before I, um, decided to figure out how to file the initial paperwork myself, marched down to the courthouse and filed, took the kids to an Airbnb, um, and actually went to my husband at the time with, with a letter and said, here's my letter. I don't want to talk to you for a while. Um, I filed for divorce and, um, you know, I'll, I'll talk to you later after you've had a chance to absorb this. Okay, so hold on a second. Mm. So you never had the hard talk, so to speak, um, to decide who's the petitioner, who's the respondent, how we're going to do this, Mm -mm. because of how his behavior was. Yeah, whenever I talked about, I mean, to be honest with you, I had tried to, I had tried to leave a couple of times before. And as you know, like when you, like, this is a, this is a common pattern, right? When somebody is in a relationship with uh, somebody who's a narcissist or has those traits, um, you go to them and you say, I can't handle this anymore. I think we need to get divorced. I don't, you know, this, I'm done with this. And then they like, oh no, they love bomb you. And they, promise to change and they change for a while and they, you know, tell you that you're their soulmate and that they can't live without you or they threaten to hurt themselves or that, you know, they're like all of these different tactics, right. To kind of get you to change your mind because that's something that really um, threatens them, right. Is taking away their narcissistic supply. Um And and being abandoned and having to examine the fact that they they might be at fault. Okay, yeah, that's what I wanted you to say. Why? Why would they try and convince you otherwise? And it's because they've lost control. Adding to what you said, Mm -hmm. they lose control because control is a very important aspect of how they relate to people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not a therapist and I'm not a psychologist, but it's something that I've spent a lot of time studying. And my understanding is that a lot of people who know a lot more about this than I do think that um, think that this sort of like this particular type of personality disorder is sort of developed in order. It, it's like a shield to protect, um, a, you know, an injured part of the, that person you know, um, maybe something that happened to them in childhood and, and that prevents them as they grow from being able to self-reflect because to, to, because that's, um, that's something that they just can't, they can't face. And so they construct this sort of crunchy outer shell, right. That, um, that nothing can penetrate and that they, that they put up every, put up every kind of defense in order to protect. Um, yeah. Okay. So Liz, you wrote the letter, gave it to him. How much, what happened next? It's all kind of a blur. Um, I hired an attorney, um, 
for starters, and stayed out of the house for a while. We stayed in an Airbnb for a while, and then we sort of couch surfed for a while because I didn't know if I was going to be able to to kick him out right away. And I wanted to give him a chance to collect his things because I wanted to move back into the house with the kids um, eventually while we went through the divorce process. And that's what happened. We, we stayed out for a while. He stayed there, you know, made arrangements to stay somewhere else, then moved out. Then I moved back in with the kids. Um, and by that point, I think he had hired his attorney. And then we had you know, the big litigated divorce that took forever and cost us tens of thousands of dollars. And um, I, I had a good attorney, but I really never felt like he or the divorce kind of complex really understood the, the dynamics in a, in a high conflict relationship and divorce and, and um, constantly was made to feel like I was the high conflict person. Do you know what I mean? Or that we were both the high conflict person and that I still don't believe was the case. And I know that when you're in a relationship with someone, you, you are part of that relationship and you contribute to what, what goes on between the two parties. But I, I felt like they got it all wrong. And I really never felt like I understood what was happening. I felt like all of the stuff was happening, you know, behind the veil that the attorneys were doing everything. And I felt really kind of powerless. And, you know, like my main job was just to sort of write checks, so to speak. Okay. So, so much, so much goes into what you just said. And and I wanted. Uh, talk to you about pieces of it. So A, there's the attorney-client relationship that I want to focus on and suggestions to give people a better way of controlling that relationship. Then number two, you had to go to court. If you're in a litigated divorce, you're going to be in court a few times. Is that Mm -hmm. correct? I was, yeah. Yeah, and I want you to talk about your experience in court with a high-conflict personality on the other side of this equation and how the court responded to your husband. Because I hear horror stories from people who come here for other reasons and they explain what it was like in court. You know, they may have to do post-divorce filings of modifications, stuff like Mm -hmm. that. But they then talked to me about what it was like in court with their narcissistic, I mean, that's the personality disorder du jour right now. Yeah. Bipolar was 10, 12 years ago. Mm. But everybody, the, the other spouse of the high conflict person always feels somehow that the court is on the other person's side and seems to find favor with whatever the high conflict person does. So let's do two of these things. Can we start with the attorney-client relationship? How would you suggest people handle that relationship if they absolutely have to hire attorneys? Yeah, well, um, several things. First of all, I think it's important that, that people remember 
that the attorney works for you, right? And that you tell the attorney what you want. Um, because I think a lot of people go in and they're ju- they they feel like they um, they give up the driver's seat, right? To the attorney and, and attorneys often come, you know, are, are very directive. They, they really um, are very assertive. They know what they're talking about. They, you know, they, they know the business and you don't. So you just have to kind of go along with what they say. And that's, that's, that really kind of takes your power away. Right. And, and, you know, it's kind of, this is kind of a weird analogy, but you know, like when you get into a hair salon and you sit down and all of a sudden, like you, you, you forget how to use your words and you, you get this terrible haircut and you're like, Oh, that's fine, I guess. And then you go home and you cry about it. Um, sometimes it's hard, especially I mean that's 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 a little no, bit of a funny aside. But this. Liz, <laughs> I, I can't believe you're saying this because as you were describing the attorney-client relationship, which I of course live with on a daily basis, I was thinking of God, that's just when you go to get your hair colored, because this just happened to me on Saturday, and he's new and he said, Trust me. And I'm like, okay, those are the worst words, but I'm like I guess so. Maybe you'll do it right, and maybe and I, have to get, I have to get it touched up next Wednesday because yeah. it did a great job. It wasn't exactly what I wanted, and I yeah. should have said, "Show me a picture. Let's talk about it." And so, let's look at the attorney-client relationship. People know nothing. It's their first divorce, and they're emotional. Mm-hmm. So, so their lives are swirling around them, and it, it's overwhelming. And you want somebody to just do it Take for over. you. Just yeah. do this one thing, get me through it, the legal side. But it's not really the right way. So what would you suggest people do before they even hire the attorney? A, to understand what the attorney's talking about. Mm-hmm. And B, establish what that relationship is going to look like going forward. How should they do it? Well, I, um, I think education is key, right? And when, when clients come to me, whether they need for me to help them mediate their divorce or they need me to support them individually, one of the first things that I do and that I think is really important is for people to familiarize themselves with what the divorce process entails. Because if you don't know, it just seems like this big, huge mountain that you have no equipment to climb, right? But learning some basics about divorce law, where you live, what the, you know, like how you start it, how long it takes, what are the, what are the pieces that go into that whole process already just sort of a simple overview can empower you a little bit because you know what to expect and you know what they're talking about and you don't go into this feeling blind. Another thing I think is really important to under, and and actually to that end, I have like a very specific piece of advice Um, there. And I'm sure you've heard of second Saturday. Yes. That's a really good program. It's mainly for women, but they have chapters all over the country and they're designed to, um, to offer 
information about divorce in, in, in that place where, you know, where, where they are. So we have one here in Fort Collins and we talk about divorce law in Colorado and they have several divorce professionals who talk about divorce from their angle, whether it's a financial advisor or an attorney or a therapist or whatever, those things can be really invaluable. They're free most of the time. That kind of thing I think is, is a really, really, really great, um, tool, right. To use so, so that you're empowered, so that you're not going in blind and, you know, um, and so that you even know what kind of questions to ask, right. And you're able to have a reasonably informed conversation with an attorney. And then you can kind of get a sense from the way that they're talking to you about whether or not, you know, they're talking down to you because I, you know, I interviewed a number of attorneys and a lot of times I, I felt like I was being dressed down or talked down to them by them. And, and that really did not um, warm me to them or make me feel like they were going to be able to represent me. Or, and sometimes I had attorneys who doubted what I was saying. You know, I came in and said this and this and this. And I think that probably attorneys get turned off by hearing people come in um all the time saying I'm married to a narcissist, right? Everybody's married to a narcissist. And it's hard to know, I guess, especially if you don't have that specific training as an attorney. And not all attorneys know about personality disorders. They just, you know, they have their training and they know how to do divorce in their way. Um, but they're not, they're not therapists and they don't understand personality disorders and those dynamics. And so, um, so, so I think just, just arming yourself with, with knowledge about the divorce process. I think um, having a set of questions that you can go in and talk to them about that you've worked through with a divorce coach or on your own about what kind of training and what kind of experience they have with um, high conflict divorces and high conflict individuals and see if they speak the same language that you do. Um, you just said something really good and that is <clears throat> familiar familiarize yourself with the divorce process, like even with a coach, this is a really good way of using a coach. Before you go out and hire anybody to work for you and represent you, a coach who's been through divorce can really walk you through those steps. And I also want people to understand that attorneys are human beings. I don't, I know we don't often think of them as um, touchy-feely people. Um, they are these like super terrestrials that speak this other language that we don't understand. Please know that attorneys have their own set of prejudices. Mm -hmm. And one of them could be not believing women mm -hmm. when women talk about some danger points that they're going to be experiencing in the legal process with their spouse, their husband's spouses. And by the way, judges have just as many prejudices. Mm -hmm. They all have to work to overcome them. And, you know, if the truth be told, we have our prejudices too, and we have to be aware of maybe what triggers us, divorce professionals, so yeah. that we can be the best for our clients. But the attorney-client relationship is, I think, one of the single most important relationships because if you've hired the wrong attorney, 
you are screwed. You won't know what they're talking about. They could be saying, well, this is important to do and it's not and you're spending money. It is a money pit for the unscrupulous attorneys. Now, there Mm. are a ton of great attorneys that would not harm people financially or take advantage of their emotional state and see dollar signs. But there are those who will. And so I am going to add, interview a few, because I heard Mm -hmm. you say you interviewed a few, did you not? Yeah, no, I did. I went and talked to a handful. I mean, I didn't do what some people do and like try to go like dirty the pool with talking to, you know, talking to every, you know, divorce attorney in town. Um, But I talked to, I talked to, I talked to a number until I found someone who I felt could hear me was, you know, was sort of a balance between being empathetic and also, you know, kind of directive. I also felt when I, when I, when I was looking for somebody that I needed somebody who, who was strong, you know, who would be able to, in a way, kind of like help me create the boundaries that, I evidently was not able to create for myself and tell me, yes, it's okay to do this or no, don't do that. Um, because I felt exposed and I felt fearful. I, um, you know, there is, there is emotional and verbal abuse, right. And some financial abuse and that's often the case. And so, um, there, I, I find that, I needed to, and, and other people that I work with need to temper their, um, their desire just to, just to throw it all into the hands of the, the attorney and just run away from it and avoid, you know, and just have somebody else do it with, um, with being able to take, take part in it and allow somebody to, to represent you and protect you, but, but, you know, still be able to, um, to be a part of it because I, I think a lot, a big mistake that people make is they, they just get so fed up that by the time they filed for divorce, they just don't want to deal with anything. And they put it in the hands of someone else, regardless of how much it costs. And they give up a lot of control and they give up a lot of agency um, in doing that. And that's really not, in my opinion, the best way to go, go through a divorce, especially if you have kids. Um, you, you want to, you want to be in the driver's seat of that. And that, that involves not throwing everything into the lap of your attorney to take care of. Um, but still being, you know, still allowing them to, to, to do what they do that you need them to do. And, and they know more than us. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and so, but I think every step of the way, if I may, how necessary is this? What are the chances it's going to work? What if it doesn't? I mean, you really need to explore all these possibilities. And you know your spouse better than any attorney you're going to hire. You do have to provide the ins and outs of, you know, what buttons will we push? How do we make it? Because this whole podcast is about how to be amicable or at least how to mitigate the anger and the dirty tricks as much as possible, especially if you have children. This Mm. relationship is going to go on for a while. So you do have to guide the attorney and explain what the possible reaction might be 
um, if we do this or we do that. And there are optional things that go on, and I'm speaking from my knowledge of, of the legal process now. There are optional filings that need to be discussed in terms of how important is this? And then where's your compromise point? You know, mm-hmm. what can you give up in order to get out? That, that, yeah. That's really important, don't you? Yeah. I mean, I, you hear, I mean, I'm sure you've heard so many horror stories about people who just dig into their positions and, and they might not even know why. Um, maybe somebody told them, oh, you can't give this up or don't, don't let go on that or don't let them have this. And, and you just become entrenched and, and unable to move. And, and that is extremely costly. Um, it certainly can be. And, and at the end of the day, you know, you get several years down the road and you're like, why was I, you know, why was I digging in my heels? Ultimately, um, a lot of, a lot of things that can be stumbling blocks feel huge at the time. Um, and if you, if you don't have, if, if you don't have a process in place where there's a lot of really open communication and transparency between the, you know, the professionals and the parties and between the parties, ideally, even if it's high conflict, um, then, then, then the fear that you're talking about and the anger escalates and entrenches these positions and prevents people from kind of solution finding and, 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 and navigating through it in a way that, that makes sense. No one wins in a divorce, right? No one, no one, no one wins. No one ever feels like things are fair. Um, well, certainly in a high conflict divorce. Yeah. Um, but if you don't have that and you've taken the time to go through the emotional divorce, before you start the legal divorce and make mm. sure there's no anger or resentment, then you've got an amicable divorce. But you know, an amicable divorce takes an enormous amount of work. And there's a point where, I mean, sometimes just to get out of it and make it go away, you have to say something like, what's your number? What do you want from me? Yeah. You know, and just just give it up because you've got to get on with your life. I was interviewing somebody um, the other day who, who was saying that she too was married to a narcissist. And she realized, in, in, in the spirit of compromise, she realized that what was very important to him was to have the appearance of having joint custody, equal timeshare with their three small children. Mm -hmm. And that affected the child support, but she didn't care. At a certain point, she said, yes, he can have that on paper. Mm -hmm. I can deal with a different amount of child support. I just am thrilled to know that I get my kids 99% of the time yeah. Because I'm going to be providing the stable home. I will never say a bad thing about him. You know, this is their dad. And I will give up uh, a higher child support amount. And I will give up the sole custody category as long as we agree that mm. I will have them most of the time and nobody needs to know it but us. And that's what they agreed upon. Yeah. 
that's a huge thing. I mean, I, appearance is huge and I see this a lot, like in terms of parenting time, like, um, people who never had any interest in 50-50 parenting time or anything close to it all of a sudden become adamant that they have that time. And a lot of times it's because it's tied to child support. And um, and they realize, oh, if I have them 50-50, I don't have to spend as much on child support, um, even though it's completely ridiculous or... Um, or be, for appearances reasons so that they can say, oh, yeah, I'm a 50-50 dad um, or mom, but usually it's the dad, to be honest. Um, and, yeah, if you, if you were able to work around that and, and, and allow that to kind of go and, and, and have somebody save face, if that's what's going to get you through it and you can afford to do that, then, yeah, those are one of those compromises that you make, right? Right, and you make them for the children. Absolutely. I mean, that has to be the greater good. If you don't have children, it's much easier to do these compromises. But, you know, you have to decide what's worth fighting for or what's, what's worth, I'm going to get rid of the word fight, mm. what's uh, worth negotiating for and what's not? Because there's a cost to negotiating. You've got to pay the mediator. If you have mm-hmm. an attorney, maybe the attorney wants to be at the mediation. Maybe. And then yeah. time and the residual effect it has on your psyche and your yeah. health. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and, and often the fight that you have with your spouse bleeds over into the way that the children are treated, you know? And, you know, if they go over to dad's house and and dad's pissed off at mom, then they feel that, right? Um, And they become little proxies for the parent, the other parent sometimes. And that's, yeah, like like you said, the, the person who knows that personality the best is the spouse, right? And so... So when I'm working with clients um, and they ask me my opinion about things, it, it has to always be tempered with, you know, your spouse better than anyone. And you know whether or not doing X, Y, or Z is going to result in them escalating their their emotions and, and whether or not that's going to explode. Unfortunately, a lot of the people that I um, that I see and that I communicate with are in very abusive relationships. Right. And so then you have to you have to open up this whole other piece of 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 the of the work that you do and the conversations that you have that involves how how do you how do you keep how do you keep that how does that person keep themselves safe? How do they keep their children safe? How do they um, set boundaries that feel safe and that are that are reasonable and manageable? And what you do if those boundaries aren't kept and what can law enforcement do? And, you know, like what's a restraining order going to do? And unfortunately, when you're talking about emotional abuse and verbal abuse, it's very hard to prove. It's very hard, you know, like the, the, oftentimes people don't believe you for, for their own personal biases, for example, like we were talking about before, or they might want to believe you, but if there's not evidence, there's not a lot they can do. So, I mean, I know it just went off on this tangent, but it's something that I see more and more frequently. And 
I have people coming to me with these with these questions and it and it and of course it ties in with how do you how do you find your how do you find your boundaries how do you create them how do you you know you've heard the term gray rock and 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 that kind of thing how do you No I have not heard that term what is that Oh really oh that's it that's that's there's a whole vocabulary around narcissism and narcissistic abuse that you know if you start Googling any of these things, you can go down a thousand different rabbit holes. But if you, so for instance, you're in a relationship with somebody who might have those tendencies, who's a high conflict person, um, and they always take umbrage at what you say or your tone or the look on your face, or they just want to get into an argument for no particular reason, or they miss, they misinterpret or they're gaslighting you and involving you in these sort of word salad arguments or conversations that are really highly stressful, but that, that, that are really intense, right? Um, and the more involved in that kind of relationship you get, the harder it is to extract yourself from it. And, you know, like in my case, if I was accused of being something that I wasn't, like if I was being accused of being a a bad mom, I would be like, no, I'm not. No, I've done this and this and this. And I just fall all over myself trying to explain like how, how that's not true and, and um, contort myself and contort the language that I was using in the conversation that we were having. It, you know, that, that feeds into this narcissistic supply that you hear about. So gray rock is a way of stopping that at, you know, in conversation, the idea is that you make yourself as boring as a great rock. So if someone says, you've been cheating on me, rather than, no, I'm not. Where did you even get that? I, I don't do that. No, never cheat on you. Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, really, really getting enmeshed in that conversation, just saying, I'm sorry, you feel that way. And walking away, right? Or nope. Or um, if, if someone says, I think you're being a bitch, you know, just giving them a thumbs up or saying, okay. Okay, that's and then really nothing. Interesting. Mm. That's really interesting. I will definitely have to remember that. Yeah. So I mean, that's a that's that's one of the things that I, I work on a lot, and, and not just that, but there are different kinds of communication techniques that you can employ if you are in this kind of relationship with somebody that kind of shut it down. But but first, it will it can really really piss the other party off if they're used to being able to drag you into some kind of watch you squirm Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. so so you have to you have to know enough about your own personal situation to know if it you know how far you can take that um, without inciting a like a dangerous anger right Right, exactly. And I always say practice. You know certain things that are going to be said to you or look over the the most recent events and how you felt like you got sucked into an argument when you had no plans on being in an argument. Work through role play what you will say. Be ready because those standard lines, um, those, those responses are kind of like tools that you yeah. pull out when you're in that situation, knowing full well you're going to be. Yeah, yeah. And it is practice. Yeah, It is practice. And if people have been in these kinds of relationships for a really long time, um, you know, you your know, brain... You know mm-hmm. what the patterns are, you know, and they're going to they're gonna be the same, if not more, in the divorce. So you can't, you just can't get sucked into it. 
Um, I want to explore more about um, how you work as a coach and a mediator, but I just want to finish with your divorce a second. And it's now you're in court. You're mm-hmm. in court. And in the vein of water seeks its own level, did your husband hire an attorney that was kind of like him? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I, you know, when you talk about a high conflict divorce, I mean, you, you, you know, you're talking about one party being high conflict, maybe both parties being high conflict, or maybe the attorney being high conflict. Because like you said, sometimes attorneys come with their own personal biases and agendas. And they, I mean, I've seen this like where it seems very weirdly personal, even though this is not their divorce, it's someone else's divorce, but they uh, almost... It yeah, almost is like their divorce, like you've harmed them somehow. And yeah. that's exactly what you're saying. Because when I hear some attorneys talk about how they've handled themselves in court, I'm thinking, it's almost like it's your divorce. You actually sound like you're very angry. How yeah. do you know this? Just because your client told you doesn't mean it's true. Why are you destroying this other person? I yeah. mean, just stick to the facts, ma'am. Just stick to right. the facts. But the judge. So was your court experience, what was your court experience like with oh. the judge and opposing counsel? So so we had a couple of court dates. And the first one was just really kind of talking about temporary orders and that kind of stuff. Um, So I have to backtrack a little bit. One of the things that um, made my attorney very excited when I produced it was a letter that my ex had written to me as a part of like couples therapy, where he, I mean, it was like a very, very long fairly self-indulgent letter, to be honest with you, where he cataloged all of the abuse that he had heaped on me over over the years, like I, like including stuff I had totally forgotten about. I did this and I did that. And then I yelled at you and I, you know, X, Y, and Z and all of this wow. horrible stuff. And so he read it to me in therapy and it, it was supposed to be this big mea culpa moment. And for me, it, it just felt like him grandstanding and it was all about him and how magnanimous he was being. But he gave me this letter that he signed, which I saved and was able to give my attorney. And he just like lit off, lit up like, you know, like it was Christmas Day. Um, and I didn't realize this, but for our first court appearance, um, he stood up in front of the judge and and my ex and his attorney and read this thing and had this like big ass kind of um, presentation that Mm -hmm. I had, I had no idea he was planning on doing that. It was like one of the most mortifying things that has ever happened to me in my life. And I still am like, I still don't understand why he didn't prepare me for that because I had to sit and look at my ex as he was reading this private thing and his attorney was was blindsided, and and then they put me on the stand, and she was like cross examined by his attorney, who didn't believe a word of it. She, you know, of course, one of the things about people who can be narcissistic um, is that they can be very, very convincing and very charming and eloquent and um, believable and relatable, and have this sort of persona of humility, and uh, and and so she she really 
clearly was personally invested in him and his story and and you know was was cross-examining me and asking me like did you do this and did this and, and this is true and this isn't true and I I just didn't even know I just sat there and cried I didn't even know how to handle it and I couldn't um and he my attorney also asked me questions it was just surreal it was so so horrible it was one of the worst days of my life so um how did the judge respond um, in the situation? Well, it was hard for me to tell. He was very impassive, you know. At <laughs> one point, um, at one point while I was I was up in the stand and my attorney was reading all of this stuff, and I was looking at my ex's attorney, and she was doing all of this like eyeball rolling and. Uh, uh, you know, like look, looking like a pissed off child and, you know, being dressed down by her parents. And at one point I was like, can she modify her behavior? Because it's really distracting. He got really mad at me for asking that. He's like, no, no, just, just be quiet or whatever. Um, you mean the judge? The judge. Yeah. He didn't like me asking that, but I was just like, I, yeah. No, I'm it was, that's really yeah. great that you did that, Liz. First of all, being as emotional as you were on the stand, did you know you, you did know you were going to be called up? Did you, or was no. that a shock? No, nope. that nope. was a shock. Yes, you weren't prepared for no. being on the Mm-mm. stand. Mm-mm. No, it was just Ooh. like a, it was like a literal anxiety dream nightmare. Do you know what I mean? Like all of a sudden you're up in front, you know, and I I just thought I was going to go in and you know, maybe answer a couple of questions and listen to the attorneys talk and the judge would say some stuff. And I, you know, I, I was not, I was not prepared for that. And, and, you know, and the judge that we had, I think was, you know, a decent judge. He was a little bit older. And one of the things that he hammered in over and over again was, you do not want me to make up your decision for you. Um, because you're not going to like whatever decision I make. You need to figure this out on your own. You guys need to figure out how to have a conversation and make your own parenting plan. And that really has always struck with me because, um, you know, he, I'm sure that was a lecture that he had given every single person who'd come through his courtroom. Right. But I had never heard it before. And, um, and it's something that I've taken, taken into heart and that I tell my clients is like, you, you want to not have to go to court. The court does not want to make your decisions for you. They, they don't know your family. They don't know what your issues are. They're not equipped to, you know, they, 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 they don't have the bandwidth to learn every piece of nuance and everything that's wrong and right about your family. Um, that, that really struck me and it, and it really motivated me to, um, to sort of, um, figure out a way yeah, to show to up and this. figure out a way yeah. and, and make things work and, and not, and not just be with my heels dug in, in my, you know, victimhood or my anger or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, court doesn't really care about your sad story so much. They care about the kids and they care about moving the process along. So true. A comment about not knowing you were going to get on the witness stand. I'm actually quite surprised about this because, you know, attorneys spend a lot of time getting people used to being in that position. You know, they do a little mock uh, prep uh, 
trials, so to speak, so that it's familiar a little bit. I mean, you've been sitting, you know, the practice would be maybe in the attorney's office, they'll have a separate chair and they'll, they'll, they'll uh, take, take the position of being opposing counsel and come at you aggressively with questions just so you could have that little bit of reference before yeah. you go in and do it cold. So I'm quite surprised. I was too. It happened. I know. I know. I couldn't tell if that was like somehow some he somehow it was an oversight or if this was a if this was like a um a tactic that he had that he thought would play well. I right. you know, just to have me shocked and um I I don't know. I was completely taken aback. It was it was really horrible. Um and I, you know, like I always hope that no one that I work with ever has to go through that because it sucked. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and then it was over. And then it was over. And then the post-divorce co-parenting started. Did things tone down a little bit once the divorce was final? Yeah, it has. And, um, you know, at first we, we really stuck to our, to all, everything that was in the separation agreement, and the parenting plan, like by the letter. And I was glad that it was very detailed because um, we had something that we could continually refer back to if there was any issue. Um, so we didn't have to fight about it. It was already there. We just was like, we just would go to it and be like, okay, this is this and that is that. And that's how we're going to do it. And over the course of time, um, we sort of relaxed that. I started dating someone. He started dating someone. Um, you know, everything kind of filtered down. The kids ended up, as predicted, spending most of their time with me and sometimes going over there and sometimes going for months without going over there. Um, and that's still the way it is today. But, you know, fortunately, we have not had to go back to court. We haven't had, you know, not, neither of us have filed any kind of motions with the court to modify anything. We sort out the change in the parenting plan um, between us. And, you know, there's, we're back to some level of trust with each other. Um, so nice to hear. Oh God, it's, it's, you know, it's great. It's not perfect, but we're, we're able to communicate and even hang out. And sometimes we even have dinner with the kids and, and that's, that's so great because, you know, cause we did of course have at one point, you know, all the love and, and, uh, you know, this yeah. whole family unit that sometimes worked really well together. And, right. and it's, I think that the kids just like love it when we can all get together and, you know. Of course they do. I mean, yeah. because no, kids do not want to be in a household as your children told you with conflict. They need calm for their lives. But at any point in time, if their parents get along and everybody's together, I, I think any any child would want that to happen. So yeah. I'm, ha I'm happy to hear that. I want to switch gears with the time mm -hmm. that we have left because you gave a lot of pointers just recreating your divorce. You gave a lot of pointers 
that you would normally give as a coach, you know, Mm. get legal advice, interview people, you're in charge of the relationship, you've got to compromise along the way. So these are really good pieces of advice. I want to switch hats to you as a mediator right now. Mm. And so as a mediator, you talk to both people before you come into the mediation room. Do you spend Mm -hmm. some time with each person? Yeah. Yeah. Usually. Um, And you get their stories, whatever they mm -hmm. are, you get their stories. Um, One of them says, the profile of my spouse is narcissist. Here's what he or she does. This is the difficulty we're having. You know, this is what we're, you know, I, I want to bring up in mediation. And uh, you're going to find him or her charming. That's all. I hear this all the time. And I mm-hmm. want to say, first of all, what you find charming people getting divorced <laughs> is not what we find charming. What we find charming is two people conversing well. That's yeah. charming to us. The, the personal side of your spouse means nothing to us because that's not our relationship. Um, and don't worry about that. If you have a good mediator, that mediator will deal in present time with mm-hmm. what's happening in front of them. So, Liz, you're going into a divorce with one person saying, This is going to be high conflict. This is what I've dealt with. Okay, now you're in the mediation. Do you find it easy to see what the other person said you're going to see? Does that really come up in a mediation? Sometimes, maybe, but often, um, you know, I always think like, I have this great insight into human nature. I can totally read people. I know what's what. And sometimes I've been completely off, right? Like somebody will say something and I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, And they were right or they were wrong or I thought one party was high conflict and the other party was, you know, or one was, you know, I I, I often have these preconceived notions based on what information I'm getting from them or what they're telling me. And like you said, you as a mediator, you're neutral and, you know, you're, you're listening to both sides and you're facilitating a conversation and you're, you know, it doesn't really matter what you think. Okay. You, um, is that your child calling? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Sorry. We have a few minutes left. Just say, say a few minutes left. We'll be good to go here. Yeah. I have a house full of teenagers. It's always like that here. Okay. Um, but so you, um, but, but I, I, I mean, to get to your question, I try really hard to be strict with myself and reserve judgment because sometimes I can see things, sometimes I can't. And sometimes the thing, the person that I thought I would understand more, I don't, you know, or, or things are totally flipped, right? Like I, somebody would come in and I'd be like, that person's going to be a real pain in the ass. And it turns out that, you know, they were very easy to work with and, you know, a lot of it, I think, has to do with how you manage your own expectations and, and then how you help them manage theirs and how you, it's, it, it can be very nuanced, right? Um, yes. How you manage them. And if, like, you can, you can, I think years of, years of being in a relationship with somebody who is so sensitive to facial expressions and tones of voice. Um, and, and was like very heightened and always on high alert has, has helped me kind of, kind of 
craft a, a presence that's that's neutral so that um, so that parties aren't escalated and I'm not inciting you know defense in either one of them um, I don't know I, I felt I feel like I just sort of went off on your question I don't know if that no, answered no, no. It, no, no, you were fine um, just just to recap sometimes the person who says the other person is high conflict actually becomes the conflict person in a yeah. in a mediation and it is surprising but you deal with it I mean we are reflexive people mediators we have to change on a dime you said something very important it's a muscle you have to exercise not to be judgmental and don't think for a second you know what's going to work for this couple before you get into the mediation room you will always be wrong mm-hmm. and you will not be the effective mediator that you should be yeah um so i find that interesting but you were mentioning when we were talking um, a week or so ago about what you consider to be the keys to mediation success. I, of course, wrote them down, but off the cuff, what do you consider to be the keys for the parties to mediation success? I wonder what you wrote down. I feel like I'm not going to remember it. Well, first but- of all, listening. If all well, of yeah. you, mediator and parties, have to all yeah. listen very hard. Yeah, well, that's absolutely true. I mean, you can't, and I don't know if you've had this experience. Sometimes I have people come into mediation and they are in their car or they're at work or they're, you know, in this, and that's that's something that didn't happen. Um, You're talking about obviously, Zoom, Zoom. Yeah, pre-Zoom. Um, right. But that, you know, Obviously, parties need to be in a place where they're capable, where they're undistracted, where there are not other people in the room, where, where they are able to, to really show up fully um, and consciously. And, 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 and for me, too, and listening, listening not just to what they're saying or the words that they're saying, but the, um, the subtext of what they're saying, because a lot of times, and a lot of times they don't even know what their subtext is, but for me... Being able to understand like why they have that position or why something that they can't get past is something that they can't get past and, and what's underneath that and are we able to kind of unearth that in a way that feels safe for them so that we can have a conversation about the stuff that's below the surface because that's really where connection happens and that's where movement happens, right? Um, if we're just talking about $10,000 versus $11,000, you know, but, you know, but that within that $1,000 difference is the key to what's going on. So, yes, I agree with exactly what you said. The backdrop, the issues with the marriage become the backdrop through which the mediation is conducted from the party's positions. They are either trying to get back what they missed out on from the marriage. They are responding to the ills and the hurt of the marriage. Mm -hmm. And eventually somebody will say, this is why they they are getting divorced. And then, of course, you know what you're dealing with at that time. Mm -hmm. I'm really happy, though, that you started with addressing one of the issues with Zoom mediations. I have great issue with Zoom mediation. I get why. We're doing it. It started last year during the pandemic. I get it, but this is why if we can come in the office, I much prefer the office mediations. 
they have other things going on. So they're in whatever room they're in. They will have their email on. They will have mm-hmm. their cell phone on. They will want to take an email. Or I, did ha- I had this one mediation where the wife actually asked for the mediation. Um, they were in two different places, but she didn't want to be on camera. Mm-hmm. She was doing it on her cell phone. And I said, wait a minute. I, we need to see each other in mediation. We need to look at each other. This is a very important part of the dynamic of mediation. I said, I'm not going to go on unless you put your Mm. camera on. And then we saw she was in the grocery store. She wanted to multitask. Ah, yeah. So here you are with, you need to be focused. This is the only thing you're doing right now. You have to give yourself fully to this conversation as you would do in the office. Right. And right. Or, or at court or whatever. Um, I, that's so true. And, and I've had a number of people do that. And I think a lot of times, um, how they show up for mediation really like physically, like whether they're at the grocery store or in their car or at work, like I said, I've had people show up in these places reflects how they how they how they show up emotionally and 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 mentally and intellectually and um you know and sometimes mediation comes to me because it's court ordered and it's just the next step until they get to go to court right because they're just right. they're just ticking off a box right they're they, not really great candidates for mediation they're yeah. just doing what they're required to do yeah and so and so they they don't care that that you know that they're not participating fully or, you know, that they're in their car or that their kids are running around or their mom is in the back room yelling at them or whatever. Um, but if people are like, if people have paid me my, you know, my fees and it's for getting them through the divorce process, they show up a little bit differently, you know, because they, they have more invested in it financially and otherwise. Yeah. And then one of the other things you were talking about but is so very important in mediation for the mediator to make the mediation right, and that is de-escalate a highly escalating conflict conversation. And it can take off like a fire in a second. What do you do in those cases when this just presents itself to you? So it's really tricky um, because I have that, you know, like all of us, you know, that, I mean, it's, it's conflict resolution. So there's conflict and sometimes conflict is really, really great. Um, so sometimes I put people in separate breakout rooms, right? And that is not ideal, but I've had mediations and I'm sure you have too, where both parties never even see or talk to each other, right? Especially if there's been some form of abuse, right? Um, and some, sometimes, I mean, I, that's not ideal, but sometimes it, it's really helpful when I'm able to get parties where they need to go because they're not triggering each other and they're not, you know, they're not arguing, they're not hurling accusations at each other and they, you know, they can, they can bitch to me about it and then I can condense what they've had to say, take out the important parts and go to the other party and say, here's, here's, here's what they're asking for, here's why, right? Mm-hmm. And then go back and forth and do that shuttle mediation kind of thing. Um, 
if if it's not to that point and we're working on de-escalation, it's really a game. It's like a dance, isn't it, where you you let somebody talk. I mean, I try to set expectations before we even get started about like what what my goals for mediation are and what I think mediation is and where I'm trying to take it and what we're not trying to do. And I, you know, and I let parties know it's okay to talk about feelings and it's, it, it, it's okay to, you know, talk about things that haven't worked in the past, but we're not going to spend a lot of time rehashing old insults and injuries and, um, you know, going over why, why we feel like, you know, you can't so and so is a horrible person that you're not going anywhere. right. You can't collect injustices in a media. Yes, it's not going to work. You're going to you're going to walk away with an empty basket. There's no such thing. Yeah. Or making the other person at least endorse that you had a viable position as a stay-at-home mom, as a homeschooling mom. Um, if you're looking for that level of endorsement, sometimes you might get it because a mediator's there and the other person wants to look like a good person. Sometimes you'll get met with stone cold, no response. Mm-hmm. So be yeah. careful what you ask for in terms of an endorsement of your valuable role in the marriage. That's not what this is about. This is about splitting mm. assets and debts, assigning spousal support, maintenance or child support, whatever you call it in your state. This is about the co-parenting plan. Those days of getting endorsement are over. You're getting divorced now. Yes. Focus on that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so it's, you know, like I, ironically, and probably a lot of mediators are conflict avoidant. Like I don't like conflict in my own life, but it's, it's, it's a, it's my, my field now. And I, I deal with people's conflict all the time. And of course, it's different if it's somebody else's conflict. Um, you you have all kinds of layers of um, um, distance from that, and you can you can look at it with a totally different lens. But um, sometimes sometimes I allow parties to talk a little bit in a heightened state because they need to kind of get that off their chest, and they need to know that they can they can say how they feel in a place where there are boundaries where they can be heard. You know, like I try to not validate their feelings necessarily, but hear them and reflect them back to them and use, you know, this tactical empathy. Um, and, and then when people can get a certain amount off their chest, then they're able to come from like way up here in Escalatedville down a little bit and they can get into a different part of their brain where they're able to sort of Think more, about the more logical part of the brain, the mm-hmm. amygdala calms down, is able to function yeah. again. Um, the word fair is a four letter F word. Talk about that because you did yeah. talk about that before, and, and we all talk about fair the concept of fair. How does it fit or not fit into a mediated negotiation? I I can't think of very many um, mediations where I haven't heard at one point, I just want what's fair, right? I just want what's fair. And unfortunately, I mean, that, of course, you know, most reasonable people want what's fair, but it's, it's, it's a really highly subjective word that is not very useful. Right. And, um, 
try I try to hear what they're saying and try to try to talk them talk talk to them about what that looks like for them and and maybe um maybe reframe it so that it's not about it's not about fair it's like what what's what is what's what, what's yeah. equitable what's reasonable what you know what it what 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 feels manageable like what feels doable because nobody feels like divorce is fair you know nobody i mean honest, honestly almost never do people go to court and get a judgment that they think is fair Right. And I think a lot of times both parties say is fair. One person might think it's fair. They might. Played it in their favor. Yeah. But even then, I mean, most of the time you don't get exactly what you ask for. Right. Even if you feel like it's totally quote unquote fair. True. Um, And, and, and the way that the, you know, the ways that judges make their decisions isn't based on fair. It's based on the laws. Right. And their interpretation of, of the laws and the facts that are presented to them. And um, they don't I mean, a lot of times I, I imagine judges have to render judgments that don't feel fair to them. But that's what they are required to do. That's their job. Right. Is not to right. not to mete out justice according to what they think is fair, what seems fair. But like, what's the law and how are they interpreting it and, and the things that are coming before them? You know, right. and what's fair to one person doesn't feel fair to another. I mean, it's it, it's it's the way that. Well, wait a minute. You think that's fair? I don't think that's fair. Here's what I think it's fair. So yes, yeah. I try and I try and get that word out. And and the word um, deserve. Well, this is what I yes. deserve. Mm-hmm. It's really we have the law in mediation. Such an interesting place to have a negotiation in mediation because you have the law. And then you have what works for both of you. Mm -hmm. And so that middle ground is where everybody has to, will eventually come together. So knowing the law, seriously important. And saying what you think a judge is going to do when you go in the courthouse and using that in a mediation to get your um, spouse to, to adjust what they want. It's a fool's errand to say how a judge is going to. Nobody knows. The lawyers don't even know sometimes Mm -hmm. how a judge is going to decide. You know, so to put that out there. Um, The the perfect mediation case is when both people really want to, in a rational way, have a discussion about how they want the settlement to be. And don't we all wish we could have those clients? Mm-hmm. But so that mm-hmm. people don't waste money, um, do you think that everybody should try mediation? And so I want you to address that. But then the the second part of that, what cases probably won't work in mediation? And if you want to try at least one mediation, fine, but let's not waste your money. I'm, I'm yeah. into not wasting people's money. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Both of them. So, so one of the things that I, um, that I put in writing and like verbally reinforce when I'm talking to parties is mediation is not going to work if you can't really show up ready to, to negotiate and and to show and 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 to show up with a desire to to put forth some effort, right? If if you are so intransigent in your thoughts and you have no room for 
um, compromise or negotiation, then there's really no point, right? And I've had mediations that were court ordered where people come in brandishing, you know, what's fair and what I deserve. And they have this they have this image of what court's going to look like based on things they've seen in movies and TV shows. And they think they're going to be able to get up and have this big speech. And then the court's going to rule in their favor and it's going to be like their big day in court. And, and, and as much as you can try to like give them a reality check, if they aren't able to move from that, then there's really not a lot of point in mediation. Right. Um, If you have, if you have parties where there's a huge power differential or a real abuse, mediation's probably not, you know, one person isn't feeling safe, wasn't one person isn't really able to come ready to, to be truthful because they're scared. And that's, that's a case that, you know, and those are instances where I don't think that mediation is really going to get people very far. Um, Because I mean, the fact of the matter is you can come to mediation and not agree on anything. And that might be a successful mediation because you've learned something. You might have gotten somewhere in negotiation, even if you haven't gotten to a point where you write it down into a stipulation or an MOU or whatever. But that can still be a productive mediation session. Um, But it doesn't. You know, just because you go to mediation doesn't mean you have to come to an agreement. The the uh, an unsuccessful mediation could also be a mediation where parties agree to something, but then turn around a week or a month or a year later and say, actually, no, I didn't agree to that. I didn't. I felt forced into that, or the mediator made me say that, or my spouse wouldn't. You know, was somehow emotionally manipulating me into agreeing, and then that has to go back to court. That's not a successful mediation either. You know what I mean? So you want, I mean, in an ideal world, parties to really show up and be open and be ready um, and to come to the table. They're going to say, not feel forced to make mm-hmm. a decision. And I'm sure you do that as well as I and many other good mediators. We can come to decision points. Nobody, this, this isn't about forcing you to make a decision. So, Whatever decisions are made in the mediation, make sure you're 100% behind them. If you have something else to think about, if you want to do a little more research, say it. Don't say yes if you're not fully invested. It won't bode well for you. It won't bode well for your spouse. Um, And it's okay to say, you know, I kind of want to make a decision this way, but I really need to think about it. Mm-hmm. And what I always say is the best decisions, if they're really going to stick, will stick without signing on the dotted line today. Yeah. Yeah. Don't feel compelled that you need to do that. Make sure that when you say yes, that's what you mean and it will work for you. And yeah. you're, allowed, you're allowed to do that. I don't know about you, but some of the most frustrating mediations I have are like post-divorce where people come back because they didn't, you know, because they either felt forced or they, you know, they, they made a decision rashly out of anger or fear or lack of education. I just wanted to get it over. over yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then they have some time to think about it. Or they realize something they didn't know before because they didn't do the research or they haven't talked to the professionals that are there to help them make these really, really important lifelong decisions. And they're like, oh, shit, I didn't know X, Y, or Z. And now I've got to, you know, want to go back and file another motion with the court. 
or parties that are just chronic motion filers, um, you know, because high, and right. high conflict, I mean, that there are pattern, regular patterns of behavior you see and in, in person after person after person who's high conflict. And one of them is, is really having no problem using the court to, you know, to their ends, just, just sort of using up court resources, using money, using the other party to, you know, continually feed, feed conflict. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's different than going back to court because you, because you didn't make a great decision, but it's, it's still something that's frustrating as a mediator to see and that they aren't always, always easy cases. Um, that's right. So the takeaways here for everybody listening in terms of your part in the mediation, make sure you understand the law. Um, please see an attorney to get clear law. If you really, really, really can't afford it and there's no free services for legal advice, there is Google Law School. So mm. you know, that, that search bar, if you're specific, will give you information. If you have a case that has layers to certain divisions of um, assets or debts, then you know, try and find a low-cost resource for human being legal advice. Mm-hmm. So come in prepared, come into compromise. Do not look to the mediator to make decisions for you. You said yeah. it earlier, Liz, the mediator facilitates the dialogue beyond which the couple can do on their own, keeps them straight in, a, you know, in the lane and moves forward either in the same room or separate rooms. But um, the mediator is not going to make decisions for you. See, I told you, what do you think? Tell us what to do. No. Yeah. The mediator can brainstorm. You can bring examples of how other couples um, approached a, a, a topic, a, a decision-making point in a similar way. Or, uh, you know, this is kind of the last resort because you want people to come to their own decisions, but they are there looking at you for guidance and help. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so you can creatively brainstorm. Well, how do you think this would work? Think about this. My favorite mediations are when that happens and they say, look, Judy, we've tried every angle. This doesn't work. And all of a sudden, because I love creative problem solving, I say, well, wait a minute. You actually agreed here on this point and this is what the end goal is I just thought of something, see if this works for you. And you yeah. throw it out as something to be discussed, not as a decision that you're rendering for them. And that can work quite nicely to advance the conversation. Yeah. I heard someone say once that when you're when you're doing negotiations or when you're doing brainstorming, even if you're doing it with somebody you don't like or you don't respect or you're mad at, you can always it assume that at least 10% of what they're saying has some value, right? So if you were able to look for that piece in what they're saying, rather than just shutting, shutting them down and, and shooting down everything they say just because you're pissed at them, if you're able to pull out that tiny little piece that you like, and, and, and it's called the yes and method. So someone says something and you say yes, what I like about that idea is whatever you like about it. And what if we also thought about, even if it's a crazy idea, right? 
there's going to be something in there and it's it's a it's a practice it's some it's a way of, of thinking about things that kind of gets you out of that those position based arguments right um yes that's what i like about that is blah 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 and what if we what if we thought about it in this way and that really kind of facilitates the brainstorming that gets you somewhere right? Rather than, no, that's a dumb idea. That's a dumb idea. That's stupid. That's not going to work. Here are all the reasons that's not going to work, um, which is just frustrating and doesn't get you anywhere. Right. And you know, we just have to figure it out once we get to that place to see mm-hmm. if we can, for that person, that Eeyore person where nothing's going to work. Remember Eeyore the horse? And mm-hmm. So that Eeyore kind of person um, there is a reason why they put up roadblocks and to try, again, it's not therapy, but we do have to, in the listening aspect of being a mediator, we have to listen for, well, what might work with this person? They do give you little bits of clues along the way. You have to pick them up and maybe repackage them for mm-hmm. conversation. Yeah. So, Liz, we could go on and on. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I have yeah, enjoyed thank it. you. Yeah. Likewise. Lots of stuff for everybody. Thank you so much. So I know that um, somebody will want to call you and contact you. And now that we have, as a mediator and a coach, open borders, we no longer have state borders uh, pre-pandemic, how can people reach you? People can go to my website, and I hope that they do because I just revamped it, and I'm really proud of it. I think it looks really beautiful. Um, the name of my business is Open Space Mediation, so my website is easy. It's www.openspacemediation.com, and I have thousands of ways that you can reach me there. I'm on all the social media platforms so people can find me there. I have a a nice resource page that I'm continually adding to. So there's a lot of information that we've been talking about and resources like Second Saturday and links to other um, platforms and places where people can get their own information. So, yeah. It is quite an open space for information. Yes, yes. For mediation. And I like that. I like the name of your company. Thank you. Thank thank you so very much for um, sharing who you are and your ideas and information with everybody listening. I thank all of you for joining us as well. We have the best guests. We have great information. The whole goal is to make it amicable as much as possible to any degree possible. Mm. You can reach me through my website. Uh, the, the forgot the <laughs> amicable divorce. I'm so into you. <laughs> Amicabledivorceexpert.com. Please give me ideas for topics that you haven't heard yet. There's always a new topic on the horizon. I look forward to speaking to you next week. And as always, have an amicable day. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves, be kind to your spouse, and cherish your children above all else.